afternoon. This is Father Toby in Cambridge with your word for today. We begin with the gospel according to Matthew taken from chapter 19. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you solemnly, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes, I tell you again, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. Who can be saved then, they said. Jesus gazed at them. For men, he told them, this is impossible. For God, everything is possible. Then Peter spoke. What about us? He said to him. We have left everything and followed you. What are we to have then? Jesus said to him, I tell you solemnly, when all is made new and the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory, you will yourselves sit on twelve thrones to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children or land for the sake of my name will be repaid a hundred times over and also inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. So no sooner has the rich man walked away very sad from Jesus yesterday than he begins to teach on riches and salvation. And his words are shocking then, and I think they still jar now. We try to find ways to explain them away because we are very rich or because we do not wish to upset the rich who we hope will continue to bestow their munificence among us, upon us. They're shocking at the time of Jesus, too, because fidelity to the covenant and riches are so often associated. But Job always ought to serve as a warning between too strong an association. In our culture, there's still a strong sense on the one hand that the poor are largely poor because they are lazy, which saves us from contemplating whether we are rich because we were fortunate. Or, on the other hand, those who look at rich people and think they have no right to wealth, and basically some of that ought to be given to me, which, insofar as they have enough to provide for their material needs, just turns into a form of coveting another man's possessions. But I think Jesus poses us a more interesting question than uh, politics of uh, wealth and between capitalism and Marxism. Why would you want to be rich in the first place? Let's think on this for a moment, and we can use the rich young man of yesterday's gospel to help us. Does your happiness beyond the basic necessities of life such as food and shelter depend upon material things? If it did, do you think you could even call this happiness? Certainly for the rich man, he was searching for something more. Jesus challenges him to leave behind his riches and to search for the more in a relation. And the travesty of the story is that the man turns back to what was not fulfilling him in the first place, and we're told he goes away sad. It poses the question to us too, do we continue looking for love, looking for happiness in things that we know in our heart of hearts will never truly satisfy? Is all that's wrong with my life that I'm eating at KFC rather than having Michelin star chicken? Would my life be transformed if I was listening to the radio in a mansion rather than a masonette. Jesus' whole ministry invites us into a new relation with God and with others. 
Would my life be more transformed by eating the KFC with someone I loved than Michelin star chicken by listening to the radio with someone I love? I think so. For some there is no special someone, but for everyone there is Christ, the solace of the lonely, and for those who have much, the source of all the goodness we already have. The problem with riches is that they can distract us from relation. If I work every hour that God sends so that I can provide more and more material goods for my family, what does that say about how much I think I'm worth to them in person and not just what I can provide? And at the opposite end of the spectrum, the problem with abject poverty is that a life can become so consumed by attaining the necessities that there is no time for relation. It's sometimes said in business that my contacts are my currency, but it can be said in all of life that my riches are my relationships. I've been reading a book by Anthony Esselin recently, and he spoke citing his agreement with Stanley Hauervas of the importance of beggars. In a way that I had not thought of before, he pointed out that yes, some are there begging simply because they cannot find work, others because they are essentially unemployable, but some have a more prophetic quality, on the streets because they are pointing to a different way, what we might call the contemplative beggar, who has defied the conventions of what's expected. Now that beggar needs our support, but perhaps it's us who need him more. There have been numerous beggar saints in the history of the church. Perhaps the most famous is St. Benedict Joseph Labourer. Alban Goodyear writes of him, Benedict from the beginning of his days was nothing if not original. His originality consisted mainly in this, that he saw more in life than others saw and what he saw made him long to sit apart from it. It gave him a disgust even to sickness for things with which ordinary men seemed to be contented. Other men wanted money and the things that money could buy. Benedict never had any use for either. Other men willingly became the slaves of fashion and convention. Benedict reacted against it all, preferring at any cost to be free. He preferred to live his life untrammeled, to tramp about the world where he would, what was it made for but to trample on, to go up and down a pure soul of nature without any artificial garnish, just being what God made him, and taking every day what God gave him, in the end giving back to God that same being, perfect, unhampered, untainted. Another figure who springs to my mind is John Bradburn, whose cause is promoted by many. But I want to share a story today of another such man who I think deserves to be better known. I only read about his death and his life recently. He lived in Washington, D.C., and he was known as Good Morning Man. Now, Larry Tut had no ordinary job. Every morning, rain or shine, hot or cold, he rose at 5 a.m. and commuted to his place of work, the corner of K and 15th Streets in Washington, D.C., as nearby lawyers and lobbyists raced to their upscale offices in the heart of the city, Tut would set up his chair on the sidewalk and greet passers-by with a smile and a good morning. All he asked for in return was a smile back. It did not matter if you were sleeping across the street in a tent or if you were the President of the United States, his niece Shanita Tut said. He wanted everyone to remain humble, respect the love of God 
His purpose was to show that to the world. He quickly became a beloved figure known as the Good Morning Man. But after being a staple of the DC community for more than a decade, he disappeared on July the 23rd. He suffered from liver cancer unbeknownst to his family and friends and landed in the hospital. But even then he tried to escape so he could get back to his work. Sadly, several days later on July the 29th, he passed away at age 67. In response, city locals flooded his family's GoFundMe page, help asking for help with the cost of his burial, flooded it not just with money but with memories. Bikers recalled changing their routes just so they could hear him shout, Good morning, bicycle rider. One person remembered him cheering her on her first day at work, while another recalled him retrieving her lost watch. Citizens decided to create a memorial for Larry Tut at the corner where he used to sit. Another lady said, he made every morning I saw him a little bit brighter. Most times we take some advantage of something so small as a good morning. I'll miss hearing him and his whistle. On Friday, a week after his death, the Catholic Information Centre gave away red whistles as reminders to pray for Tut at a memorial mass for the DC hero. Located steps away from where he used to sit, the Catholic Information Centre houses a Catholic bookstore and chapel, the chapel where Tut used to attend mass. During the homily, Father Joe remembered Tut as a man of faith and goodwill with a great heart. I remember on one occasion I thanked him for something and he said, No, 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 thank the Lord. And the priest pointed to Tut as a Christ-like example of transforming suffering into good. I hope that from him, from the good encounter we had with him, we can at least learn how to transform whatever difficulties we find in life into something good. This is what Jesus Christ did. He transformed his suffering on the cross into the revelation of the greatest possible love, giving his life, paying for our sins. Other people remembered Larry. Larry lived well and brought joy to others through the simplicity of his life. Another said it was his calling. He chose his corner on K Street, she added, after a conversation with God. I believe that through his life and with his trials and tribulations, he found his own way to be encouraging and remind people about kindness and humanity. That was his mission. Though he struggled with mental health issues, amid his struggles, he continued to go out, to be positive, to put God first, and to say, good morning. In a busy world, and we know that DC is overworked and focused on task, it was important for him to remind everyone just to take a moment and smell the roses. Larry Tut, St. Benedict, John Bradburn point to the reality that we can find the love of God anywhere because he is everywhere, but we cannot find it in everything it's not so, matter, so much a matter of rich or poor, but looking for love in the right places. It's been said that the man who visits the brothel is looking for love in the wrong place. But love is only truly found in the relations that money cannot buy and that money alone cannot sustain. 
I've been 